you are listening to KPMG's Energy Exchange podcast, a podcast where we explore the path to Ireland's exciting energy future. We discuss the practical things that we can do to unlock the full potential of Ireland as a major energy producer. I'm Colm O'Neill, and today I'm joined by Mwirin Lynch, who's a senior research officer at the Economic and Social Research Institute, the ESRS, ESRI. And Mwirin holds a degree in mathematics and economics from Trinity College Dublin, and a PhD from the School of Electronic and Electrical Engineering in UCD. She's a funded investigator with Mare and is a deputy director of the SFI-funded Nexus Partnership. Along with all of this, Mwirin is a respected commentator on all things energy. Good afternoon, Mwirin, and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. It's quite a CV. <laughs> and, and before we get anywhere near energy, I have to ask you that um, during my research, I noted that you are an accomplished choral singer <laughs> and so two questions and um, one is how do you find the time <laughs> and the second is how does it help you in your life how do I find the time um my kids go to bed at seven <laughs> that helps I will die on this hill yes it means that they wake up at 6 30 but it's worth it <laughs> like having our evenings um is is worth not getting to sleep in ever yeah um and how does it affect my life yeah it's uh it's great fun like there's um something amazing about being in a choir you, you're kind of you're not in any way important and yet you're integral to the whole thing yeah. um it's just about it's it's the ultimate teamwork yeah um you've got you always have at least one other person on your line if you're maybe a second tenor there might be one other second tenor um as a soprano i always have a few other people so if you drop out that's no issue but it's about making this beautiful sound all together um, and just getting getting that blend you're always looking for a blend you're never looking for for one voice to stick out and yeah. it's it's a it's really really fun and uh it's it's just time for myself really and then we always go for a drink afterwards so a bit of social uh, aspect to it as well yeah in fact last week um choir rehearsal happened the day that there was a big um announcement on the energy side the results yeah. of the energy auction which i'm sure we'll talk about yes we but will. i uh I raised a glass to the Department of Energy and to Airgrid and to the Commission for the Regulation of Utilities, and everyone was like, "Cheers!" <laughs> that, that was a that was a, a fairly um, obtuse point for most people, I would have thought. Yeah, but uh, they they were happy to to, 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 to raise a glass. Them. Absolutely, yeah. you, I'm sure you explained the context. At the I same did time. explain the context. How, yes, how, how great an outcome it was. Yeah, and we're definitely going to come on to that. But um, I guess it, it, to the first question, energy related, um, is you know the focus of the podcast is you know the opportunity that this um, energy transition presents for Ireland um, you know other places in the world are going to have to make this transition and it's going to be very challenging and difficult for them and there's not a huge amount of upside for them for us there's a, there's a potential very significant upside and I just want to get your just general thoughts on that whole area of opportunity for Ireland yeah, so I guess one of the things that sets energy apart from other goods is it's it's what we call a pure input good. So no one ever just wants a megawatt hour. Like yeah. no one ever just wants to charge a battery and leave it sitting on their shelf to admire it. No one ever just wants a barrel of oil. We only ever want energy to do something else with it. Um, and Ireland has been a net importer of energy for pretty much always, yeah. um, or at least since industrialization. And uh, if you look at our share of energy that is imported in comparison to our European neighbors is really high. Yeah. So I suppose one of the large um, potential areas of opportunity is to go to, instead of being an importer, 
to producing and using more of our own energy domestically and then possibly ultimately to export depending on how the international picture stacks up and what that means is that we have more control particularly over the price um, of a key input good Um, now at the moment we do have an awful lot of export like Ireland is a very open economy we import an awful lot and we export an awful lot but everything we've kind of exported so far is kind of like final use goods yeah and um, we don't really import mu- or we don't really export but much by way of input goods so there are challenges associated with that but there are certainly opportunities as well yeah and it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that because like energy is fundamental to industry it's 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 what the industrial revolution has been built on is ever more denser types of energy and and that opportunity for Ireland isn't just to look after our needs as they um, exist today but if we can overproduce energy we could export it or we could um, attract energy intensive industries to base themselves here and build an industrial base like we've never built before for sure so one of the things that we've seen in the last year or so is the impacts that energy prices actually have um, when they go high and particularly when they, when they become uncertain. So I would say it all comes down to the price. Um, we're very, very focused on our resource, which is really important. Um, and the fact that we have such a good wind resource in particular is obviously a key ingredient. But I would say that's a necessary but not a sufficient condition in order to be able to export our energy or attract industry here. If we can get the price right, so if we can secure this energy at a price that's sufficiently low and that's sufficiently certain, then yes, we could definitely attract energy intensive industries and um, particularly electricity intensive industries where to date that hasn't been our forte at all. Yeah. Um, but similarly, if we do want to get into the business of exporting energy, it has to be at the right price. Um, we just we can't expect people to buy super expensive offshore wind or super expensive hydrogen generated from offshore wind off us. It has to be at a price that's attractive and that's competitive internationally. And, and maybe that, that brings us kind of neatly to the auction that you talked about a little bit earlier on, which which concluded um, a short time ago. And I'm going to quote a, a section of a tweet thread that you that you issued at the time. Really, I, I would highly recommend that people look for that tweet thread and read it because I thought it was a really succinct summary of both what had happened and kind of the implications or, or, or read through from it. But one interesting element of it was you, you said, I've been re-examining my biases yesterday and today. I realised that I was resigned to the idea that energy in Ireland will always take way longer and cost way more than it should. I've updated my priors. Can you expand? Yeah, so I am really into the idea that um, we are all, we all do what's called motivated reasoning. So we have an intuitive reaction to something and then our conscious brain kicks in and finds reasons to believe what we intuitively reacted to in the first place. And what this means in practice is it's very important that we constantly ask ourselves, what am I getting wrong here? Do I need to update? Is there new information I need to take on board? If you kind of feel like something's true, for me, that's a trigger to, to question it even more. Yeah. And if you kind of feel like something's not true, that's, that's a trigger to maybe give it a bit more credence than you otherwise should. Mm-hmm. So in that context, um, sometimes something hits you out of the blue and makes you go wow I wasn't expecting this at all 
why wasn't I expecting it? So what happened was we had an auction for offshore renewable energy, the first auction. We've had two onshore auctions so far. One of them cleared at a high price. The other one cleared at an even higher price. Okay. Um, and offshore in general costs more than onshore. So mm. I expected it to clear at an even, even higher, higher price. Yeah. And instead it cleared um, lower than the latest onshore auction. And that made me go, okay, why did I expect such a high price? Do I have to re-examine my biases here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized, you know what, I actually am, I've been in this game long enough to just, to be kind of resigned to the fact that for whatever reason, we just take ages to do anything. And it costs so much more than our comparator countries. Yeah. Um, and that has made me rethink things. Okay. And, and if you were to look at the drivers behind that, I guess, surprisingly low price that was paid, what, what do you think were the drivers there? So a couple of things. Um, first of all, it seems that uh, we changed the rules, we changed some of the conditions to the offshore auction relative to the onshore ones. So we did listen to what industry were telling us. Yeah. Um, so the some of the auction price is linked to inflation. So our previous renewable support was called refit, which was 100% linked to inflation in the positive direction only, which was a crazy idea. Yeah. It was way too expensive. Then the two res auctions so far had no inflation indexing, which was probably too far in the other direction. So this latest auction has some portion linked to inflation, which makes sense because some of your costs are going to increase in line with inflation, notably O&M. One of the other changes we made was um, whenever you build a renewable project, there's always a risk that not all the energy will be used because if the sun shines or the wind blows when demand isn't high enough, it gets wasted. Um, we've decided to compensate wind producers regardless, yeah. even if that happens. Um, the reason for that is because we could not compensate for them, but then they're going to bid a higher price. So the consumer ends up bearing the cost either way. And yeah. it's just basically which cost should the consumer bear? And they're probably better able to mitigate an over, a cost of or a risk of oversupply yeah. than they are able to mitigate really high prices. So th- both of those things helped. But I think another thing that happened was we had decent competition in this auction. So just under 5,000 megawatts bid into that auction and just over 3,000 megawatts won contracts. So that means that we had a decent competition in that auction. Yes. So we had kind of like about 25% of the of the energy that bid in didn't win a contract. Yes. If you look at the onshore, it's more like 5%. Is it so really, yeah. yeah. Now there's there's a decent chunk of solar that went in that that didn't win contracts. Yeah. But just within onshore wind itself, it seems that we don't we haven't had enough competition on the onshore auctions to date. Yeah. So I think that's definitely something else we need to look at going forwards. It turns out that when when Irish wind competes with itself, yes. um we get good prices. Yeah. Which and and like the not only was there um, was there great interest and great competition, but there were really credible competitors in this in this auction, and and it really does give us, I think, hope as we build out our offshore wind resources. That you know, we would hope that um, I guess prices will continue to fall as people get more confidence and more um, you know more surety of 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 projects getting through from where they are now to actual delivery. I would hope so. So if you look at offshore auctions in other countries, the prices have steadily come down. So the first auction always has extra risk associated with it because no one knows what's going to happen. No one knows um, what the environment will look like once you go to actually build. But prices have come down since then. Now, this is Ireland's first offshore auction. So it is clearing at a comparatively high price relative Mm -hmm. to other countries that have had two and three and four auctions. But 
In terms of who won contracts, it included developer companies from France and from Germany and from Norway. So that shows us straight off that there is international interest yeah. in the offshore wind sector in Ireland, even though it's completely untested. So these are companies that could go and invest in a mature market. They're willing to take a risk on, a, on an industry and an area that is as yet unproven. Yeah. But for the next auction, the one after that, if these projects go ahead on schedule, not skipping any planning or regulatory steps, but proceeding through them in a predictable manner, then that actually de-risks future auctions. So there's every reason to think that the price will come down in future auctions as it has in other markets, assuming we get things right. Yeah, and it is so much of these projects and the pricing of them is pricing risk at the right point in the the project. And I think, you know, the, the, the two points that you're making there um, the, the, the structure of the auction which um, took the risk off the developer for the um, wind being consumed whether or sorry the energy being consumed whether it was uh, required or not at a point mm-hmm. in time was a, was a really smart move but also then that risk disappearing if we can demonstrate that we're a reliable deliverer of these projects will be really helpful in the longer term exactly yeah so that's still a risk in the first auction yes. but hopefully we can get rid of it for subsequent auctions which means the price will come down again should come down again now you know wind and particularly offshore wind has been the star of the show for for some time and you know our um, our energy transition strategy has um, always been heavily electricity um, based um, gas over the last 12 to 18 months has definitely started to make a, a significant kind of um, return to the playing field I would say what's your what's your thoughts on that yeah I think it's it's a classic example of you, you never notice it until it's gone um, and for the first time ever we got a taste of 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 what how much gas is doing for us yeah. when the price went really high and where there was even um, fear of actual supply interruptions at, at one point now thankfully that didn't manifest I think um there's a couple of things about gas that make it very, very useful. So one is the fact that it can store itself. So kind of a gas molecule can store its own energy within itself. And the same is not true of electricity. Yeah. You kind of electricity, you have to instantaneously use it. Now, whether you use it to pump water up a hill and then let it down subsequently or to charge a battery. Yeah. So you can store it that way, but you can still you still have to use it immediately. Um, and it's the fact that gas is that flexible fuel that you don't have to use it you don't have to manage flows on an ongoing basis um, and then also the fact that it is relatively clean compared to like a solid fuel so for yeah. home heating and that kind of thing it's great fuel um, and then there's also the fact that it's its prices has been fairly predictable until recently, until recently yeah. so now we've been exposed to the dangers of relying too much on a fuel on any one fuel and this would go for any other fuel We're, yes. you're always going to be in trouble if you rely too much on one so I think it's made us rethink things a little bit. It's made us rethink, first of all, how important gas is in the first place. But yeah. secondly, maybe how dangerous it is to rely on it too much. And we are very reliant on gas. Yeah. So to, to diversify our fuel type is, is and, and particularly if you consider, you know, as we, as we decarbonize um, Ireland, the, the, the shift from oil is actually the big shift that, that needs to take place. And, and you then start to realize how much of our current generation capacity is predicated on having reliable access to gas now when you when you look at gas you know lots of different opportunities lots of different options for us and there's the um, fossil gas that we already import in fairly significant volumes and there's the growing bio 
um, biomethane um, opportunity. Um, there's hydrogen as a as an option. You know, what wh what are your thinking across those kind of three um, three different options? Yeah. So I think if we look at our our progress in renewable electricity and and how successful we've been and compare it to our progress in say renewable heat and renewable transport there's a huge dichotomy there like we had way higher targets for electricity for mm -hmm. renewable electricity that we met yeah and yet we've really struggled to meet the far lower targets in heat and transport yeah. i wonder whether or not that is partly explained by the fact that for electricity at least to date the consumer hasn't really had to do anything yes and um, their behavior has not had to change at all we continue to use electricity as we always did and we've just made the fuel renewable yeah. for heat and transport the plan actually is um for consumers to make significant investments and possibly behavioral changes so um invest in a heat pump instead of a fossil fuel based system invest in an electric car instead of um, a combustion engine and change patterns around how we heat our homes how we travel yeah. um i wonder if maybe we're expecting the consumer to do a bit too much um mm. and if it turns out that we are then what's plan b well plan b is um decarbonize the fuel like yes. we did for electricity so that's where renewable gases could really come into their own yeah. so again the consumer continues to use their boiler as always it's just the boiler is burning biomethane and or hydrogen instead of natural gas yeah um that will be a significant policy shift yeah um i'm not sure whether or not it's the right move i think that's an open question. And the reason I think it's an open question, the reason I'm not 100% sure that we've solved this with the electrifying narrative is because we need to put a value on that consumer behavior. Like, is there a consumer barrier? And if so, how big is it? Can yeah. we quantify it in terms of money? And then the other question is, what is that value of storage that gas molecules have that electricity megawatt hours don't have? I do think that renewable electricity is going to be a huge part of the story either way. But if we can put a value on the consumer barriers and the storage potential of gas, that might actually stack up a little bit differently in terms of the optimal policy mix. But as, as far as I'm concerned right now, it's an open question. So as it, as it currently stands, without being able to quantify some of those variables, it's difficult to, to make the case one way or the other. But, but if, so, yeah. if we start to quantify them and the value of that, those is higher than we might anticipate at the start, then it, it could it could um, it could make sense to economically to, to to add that to the mix potentially yeah yeah and I do think um, you know the the energy transition in general and not just here in Ireland it's it's full of um, dogmatic positions on things and I, I think the ultimate solution is likely to be a lot more nuanced um, than, than than we currently kind of argue in, in public on these subjects. I couldn't agree more. I think the world is a very complicated place. Energy systems are very complicated. And anyone who thinks that they have the right answer is wrong. <laughs> I don't care what they say the answer is, they're wrong. Because yeah. we don't have the right answer yet. Yeah. And whatever the answer is, it's going to be complex, it's going to be nuanced, and it's going to involve trade-offs. Yes. So it does bother me when people say, oh, it's a win-win or whatever, um, because it, or, or it's a no-brainer. That's yeah. another one that gets to me because <laughs> it kind of assumes that the only reason we haven't done it so far is we've got no brain. Yes. Um, no, it's far more complicated than that. And there are going to be losers yes. as we transition. We have to face that head on. We have to compensate people appropriately. Yes. But the idea that there's nothing but gold at the end of this rainbow yeah. is immensely frustrating because it completely underestimates the challenge that's ahead of us. Yeah, the, the challenge and, as you say, the complexity of getting there. Yeah. 
Um, coming on to another complex subject, um, you and I spoke on a panel um, recently, and um, at that particular event, uh, um, Minister Rushin Smith g- gave a, a, a bit of a, a check on one of the previous panels, which had been all male. Mm. And, um, and at the most recent Energy Ireland conference, actually, we did a, a panel on women in um, energy. And it was a really, really good, good panel. And, you know, the, the main thrust of that that came through was, you know, the energy transition is going to take lots and lots of people, lots and lots of skills. Um, you know, why would we not be trying to maximize the participation of women and in particular young girls making the decision to get into the industry in whatever um, way they would choose to get into the into the in- industry? Um, wh- what are your thoughts on that on that subject? Yeah. So speaking of complex and nuanced, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I think a lot of the time the um, the purported solution so far has been along the lines of you need to get into schools, you need to get girls interested in maths, you need to get girls interested in engineering. Yeah. But if you take a step back from that, that to me suggests that the solution is we need to convince girls to like what boys like. Yes. And we need to convince women to be more like men. Yeah. Um, and that bothers me. Okay. Um, it bothers me in principle and it also bothers me in practice because it, it won't necessarily work. Yeah. Um, I think if you look at... Um, some some data from the growing up in Ireland's um, study where primary and secondary caregivers were surveyed the vast majority of, of primary caregivers are, are women yeah. um, and, and they're asked how many hours would you like to work mm-hmm. it's a massive distribution there are some women who want to work no hours there are some women who want to work essentially full time 35-40 hours yeah. um, but it's all sorts of values taken in between and it peaks at 20 yes. so what the data is showing us is that all else equal zero constraints Women want flexibility. Um, so that panel um, that was on last Friday, I wasn't able to attend because I don't work Fridays because I've got three small kids and I take Fridays off. Um, and that is fantastic. It yeah. really contributes to our work-life balance and the difference it makes to our family life is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and then my husband works few hours and me as well and, and he, he does the afternoons. So I think the way forward might be if we can pitch the energy industry as a family-friendly um, industry, as one where men as well as women are encouraged to take family leave, mm-hmm. are, uh, as one where flexible schedules are standard, yeah. um, and as one where we recognize that um, as a species we reproduce, yeah. and we like to take time not just with our children, but also with our, with our hobbies, with things outside of work. Yeah. That could go an awful long way to attracting women into the sector, yeah. uh, particularly if we can get a reputation in that area. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't also encourage STEM subjects. We shouldn't encourage, um, because it's not just uh, engineers we need yeah. um, in this sector. We need lawyers. Yes. Um, we need um, PR consultants. We need people with fantastic communication skills. Yeah. So there's a huge range of skills that we need. But I've spoken to women in many sectors who are deeply frustrated with the fact that their employers are flying in people to give um, speeches and talks during um, International Women's Day and that kind of thing. And yet when they tried to apply for parents' leave, which they're legally entitled to, there were crazy barriers put in place. That kind of thing just rings so hollow and, and it just it makes people think that it's all lip service. So I would love if we could lead the way on this if the energy sector could become known as a sector where everybody is welcome everybody's contribution is valued and nobody is expected to work around the clock 
I think that could be um, a really positive step for gender diversity in our in our field. And it's, it's it's a really interesting point because I think sometimes for all the progress that we've made on gender diversity in the workplace and so on, you've you've got to continue to acknowledge that the whole um, workplace was constructed over hundreds of years, largely by men for men. Yeah. And you know the the kind of the reforming of that for a more equal workplace. It, it means we we're going to end up ultimately with a very very changed. Um, workplace set of work practices, how work gets done, um, and and I think you, you know you're, what you're what you're saying is you know r- rather than just doing the the pieces to attract young girls into the um, into the subjects that might be useful, but actually just change the environment to make it a more attractive environment for women to participate in more generally. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. the. The current work practices were built up assuming that there was someone else looking after your house and kids all day long. Yes. Um, and as long as we continue on that assumption, we're not going to attract um, not just women, but anyone with caring responsibilities or anyone with work-life balance priorities. We're going to be cutting those people off. So the energy industry as a magnet for um, gender diversity on the basis of it being uh, family friendly and, and giving people, and it's, and it's not just families, is it? It's, it's just that flexibility, flexibility because I think I think women often just make different decisions about, about things and, and, than men do and have a different value system in those in those decisions. And maybe men would make those decisions as well if the culture was different. If it was different. Yeah, yeah. so it, it's win-win for everybody. I don't generally use that phrase, but there you go. It's a no-brainer, Mirren. <laughs> it's a no-brainer. <laughs> And so maybe maybe bring it to the concluding question of the, of the podcast. Um, it, it's a podcast about exploring the path to Ireland's energy future. And in a, in a couple of sentences, if you were queen of the world and could change one or two things, what would they be? So I think I would try to get um, systems-based thinking more ingrained. So rather than approaching things as one technology versus another, and stacking technologies up against each other, I'd try to say, what's the optimal system that we're looking for? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. And then once you know what the optimal system is, then you can put in place the policies to support the transition. Very good. Succinct as always, Maren. Um, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today on KPMG's Energy Exchange podcast, where we discuss the practical things that we can do to unlock the full potential of Ireland as a major energy producer.